So if you want to turn in your Bibles, we're going to be in two passages of Scripture tonight. Matthew chapter 5, verses 13, 14, 15, and 16. And we'll be in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 10, mainly verse 10. Our topic Sunday is making a difference and helping others make a difference. And I'll go ahead and tell you what uh, was kind of on my heart. Um, and uh, because we're a small group, I'll also do a pastoral confession. In 2017, I was speaking in the 830 service. And I was looking down at my notes at the core values that I was going to suggest to the church. And I restated the mission statement. We are passionately becoming more like Jesus. And we are committed to the transformation of our homes, our church, our community, and our world. And in 2017, in the State of the Church Address, in my notes, it says, how do we do that? We love God. We love people. We make disciples. During the sermon, I got caught up. And when I said that out loud, I said, and how do we do that? We love God. We love people. We make disciples and we make a difference. It was nowhere in my notes. It was nowhere in the preparation. It was just one of those things that God said, say this. And what I was thinking at the time was that I had just seen a study when they opened the new wonky double diamond intersection at Ashford Dunwoody and 285. You know, that crossover X thing. They opened it in 2017 and they said that 50,000 cars per day Exit going north right there. 50,000 cars every day. That means 250,000 cars drive by this church during a work week. Don't even talk about Saturdays or Sundays. And so part of the Main Street's push was to make sure that the side of the church on Ashford Dunwoody looked like a church because all those cars were driving. And what I was thinking about at the time, I said, as those cars are stopped in traffic right outside our church, and they look over and they go, oh, that's a church. It occurred to me, would they miss us if we weren't here? And I know you're not supposed to speak positively in the negative, but but that was my, my thought. If they're sitting in that car, do they know enough about what we do? They see the ball fields. They see the sports center. They see the parking lot. Now they see the bell tower. They hear the songs being played if they're sitting out there at 6 o'clock. Would they miss us if we weren't here? Now, what movie does that make you think of? Jimmy Stewart. It's a wonderful life. It's a wonderful life. He's assigned an angel to let him see what the world would be like if he wasn't there. Well, 
that seems a little negative to me. I, I really don't want an angel to come visit us and show us what uh, the Dunwoody would be like if Dunwoody Church was never planted in this spot. I'd rather the angel come and tell us all the things that are happening because we're here, that we're making a difference, that it matters that we're here, that it matters to the people who are in the church, that it matters to the people who drive by the church, that it matters to the people who could be in the church, that it matters. And so my, my spontaneous comment, you won't hear that on Sunday, but my, my addition to the core values, it was driven from that. I want to make a difference. I want, I want to be here not to be the old joke is like a hydroelectric plant that produces just enough electricity to keep the lights on in the plant. I don't want to be that. I want to be a church where our efforts are making a difference in our homes, our church, our community, and our world. So that's that's why we're having Make a Difference Sunday. And so I, I, I obviously went to the two passages of Scripture that most of you have memorized. You are the salt of the earth, and if the salt loses its flavor... How is it good for anything but to be trampled underfoot? You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. And then Ephesians 2, 8 through 10, for by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is a free gift of God, lest anyone should boast, for we are Christ's workmanship. We are God's workmanship, created in Christ to do good works. So make a difference. Be salt. Make a difference, be light, make a difference, be God's workmanship. That's that's where I'm going to go on Sunday. I found this and it was fascinating to me. The author says, manifestos declare revolutionary ideas. The Communist Manifesto of 1848 called for redistribution of wealth. Martin Luther's 95 Theses in 1517 started the Protestant Reformation. Called for salvation by faith alone. 1776, the Declaration of Independence was 17, was the, the colonies, the 13 colonies saying it wasn't going to be the same. The most revolutionary declaration was the uh, first century preamble to the Sermon on the Mount. You have Martin Luther King's I Have a Dream speech. You have the Gettysburg Address. All of those are significant speeches, but the most revolutionary manifesto that's ever been spoken is the preamble, the first section of the Sermon on the Mount. Now, Matthew 5, 13 through 16, that's in the Sermon on the Mount, but we can't understand those verses unless we understand what Jesus said before them. Now, let me ask you a question. Some of you have seen the, the video series, The Chosen, and season two ends with Jesus just about to speak the Sermon on the Mount. Why did he need to do that? Why did he need the Sermon on the Mount? Online, jump in. 
Why did Jesus, why was it necessary for him to preach that sermon at this time? Possibly to turn around the expectation of this military leader and into what he actually was as drill minister. So, did everybody hear what Steve said? To, uh, uh, he, he said to uh, uh, put a stop to the expectation that Jesus was going to be a military leader. But Jesus had just started his earthly ministry, right? He, he was he had pretty much just finished up with the temptations in the wilderness and baptism by John. But I still think you were exactly right. I think that the ministry was starting to get traction. More people were starting to follow. People were looking for him to turn water into wine, to hand out bread, to heal people, to take over Jerusalem and kick the Romans out. So they, they had a, a very misguided idea of what kind of Messiah he was going to be. So at this time in the ministry, he needed to do a, a, a define the relationship. He needed to do a clarification, and and that's why we have such a pure. If, if you know when we talk about making disciples, replicating, I've had a lot of people say, "Okay, Alan, I can think of three people that I want to spend time with. What are we going to talk about?" And my first response is, "Talk about the Sermon on the Mount. Talk about what Jesus is telling us in this." And there's no wrong answer. Because the word of God is going to point us to the trajectory that God wants us to be on. But we sometimes miss how incredibly powerful this little section of scripture is. Because of the, um, we don't always understand the reason he needed to do it. He needed to set the tone for all of the rest of his earthly ministry. All of the rest of the teachings context behind all of the parables this is where he kind of said here's what it's about it's it's huge it's a direct contradiction to the uh, typical typical way of life at that moment so a clever writer at the radio bible class he wrote a manifesto he says Whereas the wisest and best man in the world has ever known changed history with the point of his words rather than with the edge of a sword. Whereas he declined to accept political power even when it was within his grasp. Whereas he taught us to live by the way that he died. Be it resolved that we will seek to change our own world by the spirit and the attitudes we found in him. To that end, we confess that our Lord gave us a new way of seeing ourselves and others when he looked at the crowds of hurting people and he said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, 
for they shall be called the sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when they revile you and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven. So they persecuted the prophets before you. We therefore hold this principle to be self-evident, that what is best for ourselves and for our neighbors does not begin with a change of circumstances, but with a change of heart. Clever, clever writing. Um, if you want to get a copy of that, I got it from the uh, Radio Bible Class Ministries uh, email newsletter. Um, and you can do a, a search for the, um, the Beatitudes Manifesto. All right. So the Beatitudes are a really, really big deal. Um, do we have, do the copies of the handouts make it all the way around? Yeah, we got copies. Everybody online, instead of, if you look in your chat, if that's something you have access to, you should also have a copy of the handout in that. All right. Uh, I need one copy to make its way back to me. Was it, were there extras? Uh, manifest. Um, okay. So the Beatitudes helps us understand why he leans so hard on influence when we get to Matthew chapter 5, verse 13. So the, the Beatitudes, some would say the beautiful attitudes, and I, I'm not going to go through them. We've done that before in here, where I told you that I, I think that if you look hard enough, you see a progression towards maturity as you read the Beatitudes. That blessed are the poor in spirit, that's a baby Christian. Blessed are those when they persecute you and revile you and say all manner of evil. That's a mature Christian who's taken a stand for what he or she believes. So I do see a progression, but that's not what I want to look at tonight. What I want to look at tonight is that what Jesus did also when he set these things up was to show us contrasts. And I think that's the, when, when we talk about making a difference, we're asking the question, what would Dunwoody, Georgia be like if we weren't here, contrasting with what Dunwoody, Georgia would look like because we are here. And all through the Beatitudes, all through the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus repeatedly offered contrasts between the way a pagan and secular world thinks and the way a disciple thinks, the way a pagan world values influence, the way a disciple values influence, the way a pagan world values beauty or truth or materialism or wealth or fame or, or any of those things, the way that uh, a world that's twisted and broken and dark, the way that that world looks at these things, and the way a disciple looks at those things. So we're going to see that throughout, but if you look closely again at the Beatitudes, the center column of, of the, the chart that I gave you says, 
clashing worldly values. And so when he said, blessed are the poor in spirit, he's telling you that the world value that is opposite that is pride, personal independence. The two-year-old saying, me do it, me do it. And when we say, I am bankrupt in spirit, the very first uh, of the steps in Alcoholics Anonymous, I am powerless against this addiction. I, I cannot do anything to fix myself. And the person who's poor in spirit clashes with the ways of the world. The person who is mourning over sin clashes with happiness at all costs. Do we have a question? Anyone? All right. Blessed are those who mourn. Okay? That that clashes. If I'm sad, I need to self-medicate. I don't need to mourn over sin. I, I don't need to mourn over the condition of the world. I need to find something that will make me happy. A pill, an experience, a relationship. Blessed are the meek. Obviously, that contrasts with the value that our culture places on power. Blessed are the those who hunger and thirst for righteousness versus those who hunger and thirst for personal um, pursuit, personal uh, promotion, self-promotion. Blessed are the is the pure in heart. The one who places values on wealth and beauty and purity and sex and relationships and that there is a godly lens to look at those things rather than the earthly lens. The, the pinnacle of selfishness here is pornography. There, there is no greater expression of selfishness than pornography. It exploits the, the people who make the uh, the pornography, it exploits the people who look at the pornography, it exploits the the, 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 the whole system. And he says, if, if blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers. Man, is that a contrast to the climate we see today, where we're more interested in being right than righteous. And if I'm right and I think you're wrong, I don't just have to disagree with you. I have to hate you. Because that's the, the, the value of being a peacemaker. There was an article in today's uh, Atlanta Journal-Constitution that basically said, what's happening to the moderates in political spectrum? What's happened to the politicians who will reach across the aisle and say, let's work something out? They're gone. They're gone. The, the, the only politicians left are the extremes on both ends of the spectrum. There's no peacemakers left. And so when he says, blessed are the peacemakers, the contrasting worldly value is pretty obvious that um, blessed are those who are persecuted for my sake. Well, you only get persecuted if you are committed to something. Last week, um, when we talked about the Great Commission, we talked about the imperative was make disciples. And the participles that modify make disciples are 
baptizing and teaching. And the reason that someone is baptized is not so their sins can be washed away, but so that they can be publicly identified with this revolutionary movement called being a Christ follower. We don't baptize in secret. Oh, oh let's dark of night in the swimming pool in a remote part of somebody's backyard. We baptize in full view. I've baptized in the Chattahoochee River. All the people rafting going by, going, what's going on over there? How can I get in on that? Fight the current. Be over here. Uh, but but baptism is that which sets you up for persecution. Being a witness, a verbal testimony. It, it's no accident that the word for witness and the word for martyr are the same word. That to live for something and to die for something in the Greek language was the same public uh, confession. And so he, he, he's saying there's, there's no secret disciples. So the Sermon on the Mount is the collection of moral and ethical how to live kind of statements that are laid out in Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7. Now, within the sermon, there are several groupings. There are the Beatitudes that we talked about. There's salt and light. Then there's a series of what I call the you have heard it said statements. Then there's the the admonition about judging. So, so it's a, a series of, uh, of topical packets, so to speak. And the packet that I would like to look at tonight is salt and light. A, a little more background, and Steve, to your point, at this point in time, Jesus has really not said much. You look especially in Matthew Luke, Jesus has not spoken much. We only have one snippet that he said when he was 12, right? We, we've got just that, that two-line commentary that he spoke. There aren't any red letters in your red-letter Bible until we get into Matthew chapter 5. There, 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 there are some, but they're, they're, they're pretty sparse. So now he's going to give us, last week we said that the, the last thing he said was important, the Great Commission. Well, these are the, this is the first real body of teaching that he gave us. And so it, it has a, a, a pretty important thing. Last thing on the sermon in general, if you were to circle a verse that is the epicenter of the Sermon on the Mount, it would probably be verse 548 where he says, you shall be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. Does that give you palpitations of the heart? <laughs> Let's define the word perfect from the original language. Does the word perfect mean flawless? It means complete. 
Philippians 1.6, I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Jesus Christ. It's a, it's more of a word of completion than it is a word of erasing all of the imperfections. It's not, it's not plastic surgery. It's not dental implants. It's not making a flaw disappear. It's you are becoming more like Jesus. And Paul said, I'm confident of this, that God began this in you and God will perfect it. God will complete it in you. And so when we get the idea that the central theme of the Sermon on the Mount, verse 48, is be perfect as the Heavenly Father is perfect, be complete, stay the course, don't be discouraged, uh, stay on the path. He is day by day, step by step, completing you along the way. That's our mission statement. It's our mission statement. Now you know our very little secrets. <laughs> that he is perfecting us. He is redeeming us. And Paul, someday I'll go into this in depth in this setting, but if, if you open your Bible to anything that Paul wrote, and just close your eyes and plant your finger anywhere. Romans, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, Paul, uh, Titus, Timothy, Thessalonians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, Galatians. Just drop your finger anywhere and you go 10 verses back and 10 verses forward. You will find the themes of past, present, and future. I have been saved. I am being saved. I will continue to be saved. Glorification, sanctification, uh, salvation, or justification. I was saved. I am being saved. I will continue to be saved. Uh, uh, I haven't arrived. I, I haven't been, uh, been complete. But this thing I know, I continue to press on to take hold of that for which Christ took hold of me. Philippians chapter three, that 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 there is this this progression all through it, and we should take heart that the Sermon on the Mount. You know when he says, "You have heard it said, do not commit adultery," but I say unto you that if you even look at a woman with lust, you might as well have already committed adultery. So if your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out. If your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off. I'm reading that and going, I don't know if I want to be a part of this revolution. There's a lot of half-blind, half-handed people running around. Well, he is setting up a sense of God's holiness, God's sovereignty. And he's saying it is a, a long journey. It is a steep hill to climb. But I am with you every step of the way. Lo, I am with you. Always, even to the ends of the age. And so we get this complete picture of what discipleship is, that we're not doing it on our own, but the standards are there. Be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. 
Okay, I'm going to take a breath and see if anybody's got a question because I just went on a rant that's not in my notes. In <laughs> well, I actually have a comment based on the whole idea of completion and perfection because he did ask the question that if that gives anybody any, I guess, concerns about how we must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. But you see in Philippians one six that it's not on us that God is the author of that work and that perfection. And it says, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. He will. Yes. That's all I got. You remember the other thing in Philippians that describes him as the author and finisher of our faith. The author and perfecter of our faith. So the perfect word there, let's not think about flawless skin. Let's think about a work in progress. Now, and a work that's not on us to complete. Go ahead, Emily. Would you give me the Philippians citation again? I'd like to write it down. Chapter 1, verse 6. Yeah, it, it's big for me, too, to understand that it's talking about um, completion. And yeah. Perfection is, is, um, has been a hard, hard thing to get my head around. Well, again, it's a contrast to the world, right? Um, we are only now starting to see models that aren't anorexic in magazines. We're only now beginning to see the images that are put forward for us as the, the uh, ideal. We're only now beginning to see models that, that look more like real people and not 5'10", 100 pounds, perfectly shaped, perfect skin, perfect hair, perfect teeth photoshopped until there are no blemishes and and Emily we it, it would be a contrast to the world's value system where God basically says I need you to come to me just as you are and then we hear him whisper now I'm not going to promise that I'm going to leave you that way I'm gonna I'm gonna shape some things about you but perfection is something that he is operating. Completion is something that he is operating. You know, when, when I had the privilege of speaking at Frank's memorial service on Sunday, I have a, a, an 80-year-old man who I'm very confident approached heaven and heard, well done, my good and faithful servant. You, you ran the race well. And whenever we get to to bury one of our saints, we have a, a feeling that it was a life well lived, that it was a race well run. And, and I, I think that's, that's the image that we're all kind of after, is that we want to be known as running the race well. And, and not necessarily fastest, not necessarily a marathon. Some are running a sprint and some are running a hurdles and some of you are on a steeplechase. But we're running the race with him and running it 
well. All right. Some assumptions that Jesus had as he spoke the sermon. When he said, you are the salt of the earth, there were uh, at least four assumptions that a disciple should, should hear. Number one, the world is a fallen place. Beginning in the third chapter of Genesis, this world is not as God intended it to be. Number two, it's not getting any better. We're not going to climate change it into getting better. We're not going to social program it into getting better. We're not going to random act of kindness into getting any better. He is the one who has to redeem it. So the world has fallen. The world is not getting any better. The world is depraved. If you leave a man alone, he's going to run to sin. That the, the, the human nature in us, only Jesus as a human, did not have the propensity to run to sin. And without the constraints of the gospel, you know, I, I, I had a, an opportunity, well, uh, to be uh, tested psychologically before I was admitted into the doctoral program. And uh, they said, you have a mean streak. I said, I can't even imagine what it would be like if I wasn't a Christian. <laughs> because I do. I, I, mean, I mean, I do. I, I, I'm aware that all of us have things that we could say, that's under constraint. That's got guardrails around it. But, but if I was left alone, if I didn't have the, the, the grace and the mercy and the, the, the desire to please my Heavenly Father, I, I, I kind of bet I would not be a nice person. And neither would you. <laughs> I love you all, but I'm glad you're saved. So the world is to pray. It runs to sin if left alone. Lastly, the world is our mission field. That is his assumption. We are chartered to make a difference. Number one, the world has fallen. Number two, it's not getting better. Number three, it's depraved. Number four, it is our mission field. As we said with the Great Commission, it did not cross his mind that he would have to tell us to go. As you go into all the world, Preach, teach, make disciples, baptize. The world has fallen. The world is depraved. The world is not getting better. The world is our mission field. Those were assumptions. Jesus, Jesus started with those in the back of his mind. I love the deal in the chosen where he's he's writing his sermon like I write mine. I, I just had the image of, of him getting up and saying wise things because the Heavenly Father was feeding him like a teleprompter. And in The Chosen, it shows human Jesus struggling with the words he'll say, writing them down on note cards. And I, I thought it was great. But he begins with those assumptions. And so with that in mind, blessed are the poor in spirit. And all the way down, to chapter 5 and verse 13, where he says, you are the salt of the earth. 
Now, here's the audience participation part of the show. What have you heard about that illustration? Salt. You are the salt of the earth. Good, that you're kind. Okay. Why did he describe it with the word salt? Salt, salt has no flavor. It's All right. So salt is uh, flavorful. You don't have a guy very big. Yes. Anybody ever mistakenly bought unsalted peanuts at Walmart? It's the <laughs> nastiest thing you've ever put in your mouth. Why just eat the cardboard? Uh, salt is something that provides flavor. What else? It's a, it's a preservative. Okay, it's a preservative. So they would rub it on meats to keep it from decaying in the age before refrigeration. So salt is a flavor, a seasoning. It's a preservative. It's an enhancer. It adds value. Okay, it's a value added. It, you, you, you don't want popcorn at the movie without salt. It's an irritant. Go ahead. Was it was it something readily available or did, I mean, like, didn't yeah. people, it, wasn't it expensive? I'm glad you said that because there is a phrase we use uh, regarding salt. It was actually a form of payment for work. That's why we say that guy's worth his salt not worth or not worth his salt <laughs> because the salt, it, it was a commodity, Emily. It was something that someone had to obtain if they wanted. Otherwise, they're eating their French fries, kind of naked dog walking there. It, it was something that you had to procure. Now, so, so the illustration goes, right? We're supposed to season the world, make a difference. We're supposed to preserve the world, keep it from decay. We're supposed to irritate the world. We're supposed to remind it that it's depraved. Uh, we're supposed to uh, to give it a value added. We're supposed to, it, because we're in the world, it's a, it's a better neighborhood. It's a better workplace. It's a, it's a better so, so everybody understood what he was saying. The, the same things they they were brainstorming in the crowd, listening to him. Oh, oh, I know about salt. So the the thing that you would have to say about salt, and I'll say the same thing in a minute about light. You have to say it's an influence because without it, it's noticeable. Without it, it's this. Without it, it's tasteless. Without it, the meat decays. Without it, there's no value added. Without it, there's so the 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 and, and some have even pressed to say it's it's a healing. You know, when you've got a, a a poison ivy, what do you put your foot in? Epsom salts. It, it, it's a it draws out the infection. It's a it's a an irritant that heals. If you uh, have a cut on your hand and you go in the ocean, it's going to sting a little bit. But when you finish swimming, there it's well on its way to healing because salt is what does that. Sore throat. Sore throat. So what does he mean 
when he says, if the salt loses its saltiness, there are scientists who would say that's not possible. Salt is a property. So saltiness is the, but a salt, salt is defined by its saltiness. If it's not salty, it's not salt. What's he talking about? It's concentrated, it's not diluted. Okay. It's diluted, it just blends it in and disappears. Like no, it's there. If it's loses its saltiness, loses its flavor, it has no value. So let me tell you a story. Jesus spoke these words in Galilee. Just to the south of him, about a hundred miles, is a body of water called the Dead Sea or the Great Salt Sea. Nothing grows around it. No fish can live in it. If we go to Israel next May and have a day where we go play in the Dead Sea, you can lay on top of the water. You can't sink. The salt concentration is so thick that you can't sink. You just lay on top of the water. That's nasty. I mean, it's muddy. And if you accidentally get a little bit of it on your lips, it's, it's so salty. It's possible that he had a thought of that. That salt is not useful. We, we, can't, we can't mine that salt. It's muddy. It's nasty. It's contaminated. And so we also know that if salt became contaminated, they would throw it on pathways to keep vegetation from growing on the pathway. They, they would define the pathways by pouring contaminated salt so that it would maintain a path. The same way, you know, you put um, spray your patio with Roundup to keep the, the grass from growing up. But you can do the same thing if you just washed it down with salt water because Salt kills the vegetation. So if salt became contaminated, let me phrase it in the obvious. If I am not making a difference in the world, but the world is making a difference in me, I'm contaminated salt. You know, when kids ask me, can I date a non-Christian? I always ask them, in that relationship, are you the influencer or the influence? Are you going to be in the driver's seat of influence? Are you salt? Are you going to be a preservative, an irritant? Are you going to season the relationship with the purity of what the Beatitudes describe? Or are you going to be influenced in that relationship? Because if we are more influenced than influencer, then we are being contaminated by the world, not seasoning the world because of the purity of the salt. 
And so I think Jesus is not talking about the property of saltiness. I, I think he's talking about contamination. If the salt becomes contaminated, we throw it on the pathways to keep the weeds from growing. It's not good to put on your popcorn. Not good to rub on meat to keep it from decaying. It's not so. So if the salt loses its preservative seasoning, if it loses that property because it's been contaminated with mud or dirt or diluted or whatever. Then, then the it, it's still in the essence salt. It's just not useful as salt. And I think it's a warning to us as disciples. If we want to make a difference, then we've got to be on guard against the contaminants that would make us less salty. Now he says, you're the light of the world. So again, he is standing in Galilee, and about 100 miles south of there is the Dead Sea. Well, about 80 miles south of there is a community of monks called Essenes. And they call themselves the Sons of Light. But they never leave their compound. They never speak to anybody except each other. They spend all day taking ritual baths and copying scripture. Now, it's a valuable thing that they copied scripture because the Essene community that maybe he was thinking about is where in 1948 we found a cave full of the Dead Sea Scrolls. So I'm grateful that they copied a lot of scripture. But they call themselves the sons of light, but they only lighted themselves. An oil lamp in that day, I have one in my office, if anybody wants to come see it. I, I bought one in Israel one time. And it's a genuine first century oil lamp. And it's, it's not any bigger than Gary's mouse. It's, it's actually about half the size. And it would be, it would look a little bit like a flattened teapot. No three inches long from the, the reservoir to the spout. And the way it would work is that they, you would pour oil into the reservoir and put a wick in the spout, light the wick, and it would draw oil up through the wick and that would be the light he's talking about. We're not talking about a, a bazillion watt searchlight at the airport. We're talking about what common people had. In, in their economy, when the sun went down, work stopped. By the time the sun went down, if it was dark, you were in your house. Because you may have one or two of those little guys, but you sure didn't have headlights on your car. You didn't have street lamps. You didn't have electric lights. You didn't have these Coleman camping lanterns that throw light everywhere. You had a tiny little oil lamp that had a single flame that would give enough light to just break down the darkness to do what you had to do before you went to bed. 
And so when he says, you are the light of the world, he's keeping on the same. It's a very tiny light. But if it's pitch black everywhere else, that light is significant. And he says, nobody, they, 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 even in the smallest, humblest house, they would put that tiny lamp in the middle of the room so that it throws as much light as possible. He said, and if, if a watchman has a light to see who's at the city gate, he's not going to put it under a bushel. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. And so he says in Matthew 5, 14, you are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp, put it under a bowl. They put it on its stand. It gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before men that they may see your good deeds and praise the Father who's in heaven. One writer says, why would anybody try to hide a light? That's that's silly. We see <laughs> cop shows all the time with, you know, in World War II shows where the headlights were half-hooded so they wouldn't be visible. But why would anybody hide a light? How do we hide our light? One, being quiet when we should be speaking up. Number two, going along with the crowd. Number three, denying the truth. Number four, letting sin dim our witness for Christ, labeling us accurately a hypocrite. Five, not explaining the truth to others. Six, ignoring the needs of others. The, the story of the Good Samaritan, when we pass by someone who needs help, we damage the witness for Christ. We put a, a bushel over our life. Is the word accountable be there? Like, I'm not Absolutely. I'm myself accountable. I don't well, hold anybody else accountable. When, so, when you turn on the light, it brings everything out, right? You know, if, if I was to sort of summarize the whole thing, I'd say he's telling us to illuminate. He's telling us to irritate. Salt and light. Irritate and illuminate. And, and then... That, that this is such a common sense. He was talking to just ordinary people. <clears throat> and that's where I really, that's really my takeaway. Paul said, it is by grace you're saved through faith. Grace, God's activity. Somebody said God's riches at Christ's expense. Grace. It is by grace you are saved through faith. Faith is your, your, your placing your trust, your will, your pouring spirit. He says, but even your faith, you don't come up with on your own. I have to give it to you. I have to give you the spirit of humility to receive what I have for you. For it is by grace you are saved through faith. But even that's not of your own because you boast. I have more faith than you. And then he says, you are Christ's workmanship. And the word workmanship there, I said in a sermon one time, we would translate it magnum opus. You are his crowning work. The best he's ever done. 
and you are created in Christ. You are in Christ. I am confident this very thing that he who began the good work, you are in Christ, created in him to do good works. So the play on words, workmanship to do good works. God created you so you can create good things for others. And so when we talk about making a difference, these, these pictures come together. Salt is the opposite of corruption. It prevents corruption from getting worse. Light gives the gift of guidance so that those who lose their way can find their way home. That's making a difference. And I want us to make a difference. Our, um, coming up on uh, September 11th is Mission Sunday, where we will highlight all the ways that our missions team leads us in making a difference. And we're going to challenge us to, to sign up for Serve Day, to think about uh, things that we could do in our neighborhoods. Gary has a, a game night in his neighborhood every Sunday night. And, and it makes a difference because we have said, I'm not special. I'm not that gifted. I'm not beautiful. I'm not rich. And, and in your mind's eye, picture thousands of people on the hillside who fit that description. Fishermen, farmers, beggars, townspeople, ordinary people gathered to hear Jesus preach. And he said, you are the light of the world. You are the salt of the earth. And so I, I think we are tempted sometimes to say somebody else needs to do it because they're a lot more gifted than I am. Somebody else needs to do it because they're a lot more rich. They, they're a lot more popular. They have leadership gifts. They're uh, very talented. They're a good decision maker. They need to do it. Well, I'll quote Dr. Seuss, who says, you may be the world to somebody, even though you think he doesn't know you're in the world. You may be that one person to that one person, and you may do it. All right? Did I spend a whole hour on three verses? Well done. All right. Good night, all y'all.